before I begin, I do want to express my deepest gratitude to you for the privilege of preaching the Word of God to you and for the kind and large-hearted generosity of your hospitality to me. Thank you. Thank you. May God reward your kindness to his servant. I can still remember the first two missionary families that I ever met as a young child. One served Christ in Brazil, and the other family served Christ in Liberia, West Africa. And even though I was young, probably seven, eight years old, I looked upon these folk with a bit of awe and reverence. I didn't understand everything that was involved, but I, I did see them as people who were willing to sacrifice the ease and luxury of the good life in 1950s America to exchange that for the much harder existence of less developed countries. Now, also glean from their testimonies that what motivated them was a love for the souls of people who had never heard of the full and free salvation that God has established in his Son, Jesus Christ. And these people were willing to leave what I treasured to go to such people and preach the gospel. And they became spiritual heroes to me. Now, 60-plus years later, I still look at those people. I've lost contact with them. I rather suppose they're all now with Christ. But I still look at them, remember them with the utmost respect and admiration. But over the years, I have been forced to acknowledge that not everything in missions is what it seems. Not everything is what it ought to be. But I think those people were real, and I admire their work and everyone like them. But to my own great embarrassment, I must confess that I don't think that my own understanding of missions has been biblically accurate or as honoring to God as it should have been for the much greater part of my life and ministry. And I say that because for the greater part of my life and my ministry, I have looked upon missions as being centered in the need of human beings more than in the glory of God. 
And that's embarrassing to confess. And particularly since my overall view of salvation became much more doxological, much more focused on the glory of God some 50 years ago when the Spirit of God using the Scriptures convinced my resistant mind and heart that salvation is indeed all of God, all of grace, and for His glory. Somehow, my view of missions lagged behind my view of salvation. I still understood that if mission works, if people are actually converted, that is the outworking of God's eternal decree. But I didn't understand properly the motive, the driving force, the ultimate purpose for mission. Now, that's inexcusable because the Bible's filled with statements that tell us what it's all about. But many of those statements I read and understood as being devotional thoughts. I would read text and almost, not in these words, but almost think to myself, that's sweet. That statement about God, that's sweet. It warms my heart. What I didn't realize, as I should have, is that those sweet statements were a great deal more than devotional thoughts. They were the very foundation of a theologically accurate understanding of the world and of missions in particular. If you're with me still, you're probably saying, what? What's he talking about? Well, I want to try to show you. Please turn to the 96th Psalm. Psalm 96. In the time that I have left, we will endeavor to give an overview, I hope, of this marvelous psalm. If you compare... Psalm 96 with 1 Chronicles 16, you will realize that Psalm 96 is a restatement of the latter part of 1 Chronicles 16. That particular psalm was written on the occasion of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle that he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. And this time, nobody died. And he rejoiced, and he wrote a psalm. And that psalm is recorded in 1 Chronicles 16. The first half of it is omitted, and only the second half of it is recorded in Psalm 96. The part that's omitted focused upon Israel and Israel alone. The part that is recorded in Psalm 96 focuses upon the nations. I've divided the psalm into three parts. 
the charge, the cause, and the crisis. First of all, the charge. The opening of this psalm consists in commands or directives or a solemn charge for the people of God. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. Do you see the universality of this call? The new song referenced here anticipates the new covenant founded upon Christ, His death, His resurrection. This new song is in celebration of God's glorious grace and the creation of salvation for mankind. And this new song is to be taught to the nations because the salvation that God has created is for the nations. The miracle of the resurrected Christ is the hope of the world, the only hope of the world. The world must know and rejoice in what God has done. It's a new song because God is going to do a new thing. Something prophesied and yet not understood, something scarcely understandable, believable. God himself, in the person of his eternal Son, would come into the world of humanity and take flesh and blood. And in this world, he would live. He would eat, sleep, and work, just like every other human. But he will not sin. And yet he will die. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned in any respect. So why does he have to die? Well, not because of crimes that he has done, but because we have sinned. It's God's saving purpose to redeem sinners by the sacrifice of his own son. He will die. The God-man will die. He became human so he would be capable of dying and redeeming sinners like me and like you. But death will not have the ultimate say. He will rise from the dead because his death is of infinite value to pay the price it was designed to pay. Death could not hold him. Justice would not allow it. He was raised from the dead and he was glorified. His real human body became immortal, undiable. He was taken into heaven. But even as he went into heaven, he promised that he would be accessible to everyone on earth that calls upon him. 
That's the gospel that we have been sent to preach. In God's Son, there is an accomplished salvation for the world. Not, not a temporary atonement, a temporary appeasement of divine wrath that has to be repeated every year. No, this is once and for all. It's done. Redemption is done. And we announce that glad historical reality. The glory of this, the wonder of this, must be taken to the nations. As we read in Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Because there is redemption. There is hope. There is hope for mankind. And so our psalm says, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. There is hope. At this very moment, somewhere in Roanoke, I don't know where, but I'm fairly certain somewhere in Roanoke, there's a family gathered by the bedside of a precious loved one who is passing out of this world. And as that family watches with tear-stained faces, they do so without hope. They have no objective reason to think that they will ever be in the company of their loved one in peace and joy ever again. They're without hope because they are without God. And that scene is being reduplicated thousands of times all over the globe right as we meet here to worship. People are passing into eternity without hope. There is hope, but there's only one. It's Jesus. Who's going to tell them of this hope? We who have been made the recipients of that hope are to go and teach them this glad new song. You see, Psalm 96 is a missions psalm. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. It is a missions psalm, but, but, it is a missions psalm that takes the form of a call to worship. It begins, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. God's people, that's you and me. We are called to go into a hopeless world to produce worship unto God 
The occasion for the worship is God's great salvation. The message of hope, the good news, that's the occasion for the worship. But the objective of the mission is the worship. What we are after is to declare to the universe the glory of our God who has made this salvation. The charge that we have received as the Lord's people. Now what I'm about to say can be misunderstood, so listen very carefully. The charge that we have received as the Lord's people does not terminate ultimately upon the salvation of perishing humans. As much as we desire that, aim at that, work for that, pray for that, our work does not terminate ultimately on the salvation of people. It terminates on the worship of God. That's our supreme motivation. It's that the nations might sing unto our God who has wrought this great redemption. We read the Great Commission this morning. It sends us to make disciples, to make disciples of the nations. What's a disciple? Well, a disciple is a follower a student, a learner, an imitator. We are to call the nations to become followers, students, learners, imitators of Christ. And when that happens, where does Christ take these people who are following him, learning from him? What is the number one thing he teaches? He teaches his followers to love God supremely with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you follow Jesus Christ, he leads you to worship. He leads you to magnify his Father's glory. And that's what we're about. John Piper opens the first chapter of his excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I hope, I hope you've read it. If you have, you've already recognized the book and many things that I've said. But he opens the first chapter with these words. If you haven't heard them, listen to them carefully. If you have read them and forgotten them, remember them. He writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. 
It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. God is seeking worshipers. And He is doing that at the cost of His Son. And He's doing that through the church and through the gospel and through missions. But missions is not just or primarily about the benefit of men. It's about the glory of our God. Missionaries who are driven by the motive of doing good to people will often discover that the people they're trying to do good to don't want their good. They don't want them. They don't like them. And if the primary motive is the sweetness and attractiveness of perishing humanity, that motive will burn out very quickly. But what never changes is the glory of our God the worthiness of our God to be known, to have His story told, to be worshipped. We move secondly to the cause. That's the charge. Now, the cause. What do I mean by the cause? Well, I'm unashamedly seeking to preserve my alliteration. Charge, the cause, the crisis. The better word would probably be the reason or the argument. I'm pointing now in the psalm to the rationale that David gave for laboring to bring the nations to sing this new song in worship of Jehovah. Look at verse 4. 4, that's... It's a word that leads to an explanation for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Oh, beloved, how many of us were thinking thoughts like that when we came into this assembly this morning. The Church of Christ is a house of God. It's a place where God comes to meet with His people in His special presence. How many of us trembled at the thought that we would be in such close proximity to God in this assembly. How many of us confess sins? I dare not come before God without confessing what I said to my wife this morning. The anger I displayed to my children. The envy I felt last night 
How can I come before this God without confessing my sins? Because he has a piercing gaze and he sees everything. You see, the motive for being a Christian, acting like a Christian, thinking, speaking like a Christian, worshiping like a Christian, the ultimate motive is the glory of God, the greatness of our God. The goal of missions is worship because because the deservingness of God to be worshiped is more weighty than the need of men to be saved. The deservingness of God to be worshipped is more weighty than the need of human beings to be saved. The most urgent issue in the history of the world is not what will happen to me. Most urgent issue is will the God who created the world and redeemed it at great sacrifice, will he be worshipped and loved and adored? As difficult as it is for us to grasp, we don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be rescued from the just punishment of our sins because we are guilty. Punishment is due us if we experience, if I, I'll put it in first person singular, if I experience the wrath of God, I have no complaints because I'm guilty. In stark contrast is the worthiness of God to receive honor, praise, submission, gratitude, adoration. It was for this purpose that he created the world. It's for this purpose that you and I have breath and being, namely that we might admire and publish the glory of our God. What matters most to God? My happiness or his glory? Well, you know the answer. God is devoted to the glory of his name. And if we want to be on the same page with God, we've got to figure that out. That having our will, having our name and lights, having our pleasures, having all of our desires met is relatively trivial. What is not trivial, what is of consuming importance, is that God be glorified and his name be exalted. God's devoted to that. Now, if you were to meet a human being, and that human being was to introduce himself by saying, my name is so-and-so and I'm great, and I want you to know I'm great. And if you will not admit my greatness, we will never be friends. What would you think of that person? Well, I think I would say, well, 
I don't want to be your friend. You've got a problem. Well, what do we think about a God who is so completely devoted to the exaltation of his name? Is he an egotist? Is God egotistical? Well, let's define the term. What's an egotist? An egotist is a person who has an exaggerated view of himself or herself. It's a person who thinks of himself as being more talented, more beautiful, more deserving, more important than he actually is. When a Hollywood star or an NBA star makes some pronouncement on world affairs with the expectation that ordinary people will consider that statement significant, that is normally an expression of egotism. Now, God is unapologetically devoted to his own glory. Why does that not make God an egotist? Well, simply because God is great. He doesn't think he's great. He is great. God is vastly superior to everyone and everything outside of himself. That's not an exaggeration. That's reality. It is only right, it is only righteous that he be esteemed and worshipped incomparably more than any of his creatures. And when God is not supremely esteemed, when any part of his creation is adored more than he, in either case, it's sin, it's unrighteous. Which means that it would be sinful for God not to be supremely concerned with his own glory. Just like it would be sinful for me not to be supremely concerned with his own glory. And if God were to allow us to think that we or our children or anything or any place or any person is of greater importance than he is, he would be consigning us to destruction. Because that's a lie. The psalmist gives one piece of evidence as to the unrivaled superiority of our God. Superior to everything that claims to be God, everything to which we attach falsely, preeminence. In the latter part of verse 5, David simply writes, but the Lord made the heavens. The nations have their gods, their only idols. They carve them out of a piece of wood or a piece of stone. They're dead, dumb. But Jehovah made the heavens. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how big eternity is? How, how do we measure eternity? 
I think the closest we can come is to try to see the other end of the heavens. Heavens are so vast. It's like eternity. Now, there is an end somewhere, but to see it, to try to calculate where that end is, it's impossible. I didn't take these measurements myself, but somebody did. And I understand that the galaxy to which our solar system belongs is about 587,000 miles in diameter. And it contains over 200 billion stars. And our galaxy is simply one of about a million galaxies that we are able to see in our most powerful telescopes. Let that, let that sink in a million galaxies containing 200 billion stars each. How did they come into being? Our God created each galaxy, every star in each galaxy, every particle in each galaxy. Listen to what God says about this. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Look into the sky and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. He didn't just create them all. He has a name for every one of them. By the greatness of his might and the power of his strength, not one of them is missing. Now you tell me who deserves to be known, honored, and praised more than the being who spoke the galaxies into being, who calls every star by its name and keeps track of every one of them and keeps every orbit moving in its appointed path. Who is like this God? What is more righteous than that the creatures who depend upon this God for every moment's existence, what's more necessary or righteous but that these creatures know Him and honor Him and bow before Him, beginning with us? Now, one of the most astounding facts about our God which ought to humble us and drive us into profound worship, is that this great God has chosen to make human salvation 
to be one of his most staggering displays of glory. I mean, God could have passed us all by. Who could charge him if he just let us live, die, and perish in our sins? It would be just. But God has chosen that he will use the redemption of fallen humanity to display the glory of his goodness beyond every other display. So Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to what end? To the praise of the glory of his grace. The charge is go to the nations and teach them the song of redemption. And the charge is rooted in this cause. God is infinitely great. I would just summarize the last point. The last part of the psalm I'm calling a crisis. Now, it's not completely a crisis. Part of it is rejoicing. Verse 10 Say among the nation, this is what you say to the nations. This is part of our mission. Say to the nation, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. What's a crisis? He's coming. There's an end to all of this. One day follows another. A week follows another. A month, a year. It's all going to come to an end. There is an appointed end. Paul stated it like this. God commands all men everywhere to repent. To repent of what? not treating him as God. God commands all men everywhere to repent because, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, wherein he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. In one respect, the day of judgment will be a day of gladness for the whole creation. Sin will be expelled 
and all the earth will be made new and immortal and incorruptible. Be a glad day for the creation. The creation groans and yearns for that day. It'll be a wonderful day for the creation, for the church, but for those human beings who come to that day still estranged from God, still in their sins, still idolizing themselves or their money or their sports, whatever. That day will be terrible beyond imagination. And so there's urgency in mission. There's urgency because our God deserves to be known and loved and worshipped. There's also urgency because he's coming to judge every human to which he has given life. See, Psalms like Psalm 96, they they sound sweet. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Wonderful sounds. These are not devotional thoughts. This is the foundation upon which the world exists. God created the world. God demands to be worshipped. God is coming to judge. It's time that we got serious about this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, there's some around you who don't know God. I speak this to your shame. Are you living next door to someone who doesn't know God? You sit next to someone in class who doesn't know God, and there you sit, you know him, you hear about him, you read about him, you love him. They don't know him. Why? Haven't you told them? He deserves to be talked about. He he deserves for us to brag about him. You say, but my friends, I don't like to hear about him. Never mind them. Think of him. He deserves to be talked about. He deserves to have his name exalted. And that's what we're about. The glory of God. Well, Father, forgive us for turning everything upside down, making everything about us when it's really about you. And it's about your son. Help us to have a better view of mission. While we desire that Every man would be saved and no one would perish. Help us to want much more that you will be exalted and the name of your Son will be adored. Help us. We're so weak. Help us.
Help us to read our Bibles, not as devotional books, but as statements of eternal reality. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.